0: Well, I thank you so much, Ege, For you're um, welcome. It's really lovely to see you all. Um, this is a big subject, how to, how to navigate politics as a Christian. Uh, so uh, um, inevitably what I do tonight will just be a, a bit of an overview, but I hope that it's a sort of helpful, it will be a helpful way for you in the future to kind of n- navigate. It'll give you a kind of general compass of h- how to approach politics as a Christian. And it feels all the more urgent for us right now, doesn't it? You kind of, I don't know about you, but you, Ukraine is constantly in my mind. And you know, what, what, what's the answer to, to the whole Ukraine uh, situation? What can we do? You know as Christians, we know we can pray, we know we can give financially, to support refugees. Perhaps we might get a chance to welcome refugees ourselves in our own homes here. But what can we be doing politically as, as Christians in that kind of situation? What can we expect to achieve? Is there anything distinctive that the Christian has to contribute to the whole political problem of Ukraine? Or just think of today, you know, should Boris be in Saudi Arabia asking for more oil, or should he be asking UK citizens to be paying more for their energy? Uh, Does the Christian have anything distinctive to say on any political issue? Should we expect God's kingdom to come in politics, or or should we, frankly, just stay out of it altogether and focus on preparing for heaven when everything's going to be sorted out? Well, there are four main ways that the church has approached these kind of questions uh, in the past and in the present. I want to try and survey them tonight, note their strengths and their weaknesses, and then end by commending the final one to you as 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 a helpful blend uh, of all the previous three. So the first, um, the first approach I want to talk to you about is accommodation. Now this is where the church or, or Christians accommodate um, their message to the politics or the culture of the time in order to remain relevant to the politics of the time uh, and to have some influence in the prevailing culture. And often it's, it's based on a theology of uh, discerning what God's will is, not so much uh, from the Bible, but from what is God teaching us through the experience of the, of the current culture around us. Now, of course, the great advantage of this approach is that it, 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 gives, it gives Christians and the church a seat at the establishment table, at the center of politics and culture, uh, with the ability to have some influence, only so far as the political status quo is not challenged too much. But of course, the the disadvantage of navigating that kind of course is that the church, in the process, gives up its ability to distinctively speak uh, Christian truth to the politics of the time. So the state um, ends up becoming sovereign in that uh, model, and the church gets subsumed into the state all too easily. Now, I want to kick off straight away, but we're going to have a few times where we just chat to one another for brief periods of time. I'd love you just to turn to your neighbors now, just for two minutes, and discuss two things. The first one is, can you think of an example of this going on in the present or, or in the past, and can you think of one bit of teaching from the Bible that would challenge that kind of approach? I'm going to give you two minutes until two minutes past eight. Have a quick chat about that, and we'll come back. It's, it's two minutes past eight okay i I know you haven't been able to plumb the depths of those questions but did um did anyone come up with an example of, of that that kind of approach past or or present of the church doing that yeah mark we talked about the russian orthodox church and what's going on at the moment um with the invasion of ukraine and of course they used to all be part of the same church until the Ukrainian Orthodox Church broke away a few years ago, and how Putin has co-opted the Russian Orthodox Church leadership um, as part of his sort of Russian nationalist agenda, um, and funneled a lot of money into buildings and corrupt leaders. But I'm sure there's people in the Russian Orthodox Church who've got massive reservations about what's going on, because it clearly goes against Christian teaching. Yeah, thank you very much. I <coughs> it's a really so it 's a very sobering example that one isn 't it and uh, i 'd be the first to admit that i 'm not an expert on the history of the Russian orthodox Church, but i 'm given to understand that it, it, you know it 's gone through cycles in its history of being either cl- closer or more more critically removed from the czars um, and then the Soviet Union and then now today, but certainly in these last thirty years it 's become very very close to the state, and you can see what happens as a result it loses its ability to you know, critique from a from a distinctively Christian point, uh, point of view and gets subsumed into the state. Some, someone else had their hand up over here. Thanks, Jago. <laughs> 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 it's giving the vicar some exercise anyway. Sorry. Um, so we thought of kind of a contemporary example. Um, literally this evening, the Lords are debating the health and care bill, um, and there is an amendment in that that, is essentially pushing for an amendment about assisted dying. Um, And there's an awful lot of lords who are being forced to take a party line at risk of losing their party whip if they don't vote a certain way. And there's quite a few of them who are probably not in favour of the way that they're being asked to vote by their party, but they're being subsumed into the politics in that if they don't vote this way, they'll quite simply be at risk of losing their wit. yes yes thank you that 's really helpful So we 've had an example of the kind of the church corporate doing it and at, a, at an individual Christian level the the, the the temptation will be constantly there to accommodate to the culture because the reality is if you know, if, um, if the Christian message is is god 's message to to the world it's always going to rub up against the culture in some way at different points in, in history whatever culture Uh, you're in so that's that's a reality um did anyone come up with a sort of a a, a biblical idea in terms of how would you challenge that you know if you had a chat with patriarch kirill right now for instance what might you say to him any any ideas oh we've got a bold bold man here thanks joe yeah i mean for me it's uh jesus said love your neighbor Love God and love your neighbour. And that should be the principle beneath laws. Whether you're left wing or right wing, they're all the same goal of a better world for loving your neighbour. So to that leader of the Orthodox Church, I can't remember his name. But then he's got a way up. In communist Russia, there was no church for 40 years. They annoyed the government. The whole church was abolished. So is it worthwhile? I mean, I think he should just be silent on the issue. Actually, that is one example where he should stay out of the issue or condemn the war, in my opinion. But then he risks losing the whole church to russians blowing up every church in russia so yeah but i'd say love your neighbor should be the principle love your neighbor yeah war isn't so that's an, that's an excellent excellent answer and love your neighbor is going to come going to come up again uh, this evening because it is at the heart of you know why and how christians should invo- get involved uh, in politics uh you know another thing you might say to a, an accommodationist is you know what jesus says about god and God and Caesar, you remember the famous episode in Matthew 22, where some, someone gives him a coin, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he, you know his answer is, you know, give me the coin, whose head is on it? It's Tiberius Caesar. You know, pay Caesar what his due is. I pay him his taxes, but give to God what is God's. Uh you know, and the picture there is basically give God you give God everything, and you give you give Caesar you know, a little bit. That's part. Of, that's part of that. So again, it's a very strong statement from Jesus of of actually the, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Christ over all politics. Uh, so that would be another kind of thing that one would say uh, when you're being tempted to uh, accommodate. And I think it's worth. We've got a there's a little two minute video that that um, just looks at that the the God and Caesar uh, scenario just to kind of play this out for us a bit more. If
1: you could kindly play it, Toby, that great. A group of spies once tried to trap Jesus, asking, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? In other words, are you a revolutionary opposed to Roman rule, or are you a compromiser supporting Roman rule? He refuses to be tricked into giving a simplistic answer, and instead asks for a coin, asks his own question, and then famously declares, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. Now, we hear those words with our Western mindsets and think, ah, easy, let Caesar look after all the practical, logistical, political stuff, and let God and his people get on with all the spiritual stuff. The Sunday morning stuff, prayers, hymns, invisible things, that's God's turf. Taxation, roads, healthcare, that's Caesar's turf. How convenient to have that separation. None of that awkward mixing of religion and politics. But for those listening to Jesus in the first century, there's not a chance they would have heard Jesus' statement that way. The Hebrews, body, soul, and spirit were not separate entities, life was one. For example, the temple wasn't just the place where you worshiped, it was a civic center looking after many aspects of communal life. For the Hebrews, their religious leaders were also their political leaders. So when we talk about what is God's, and what is Caesar's. We're not talking about two separate realms where God has jurisdiction in the sacred and Caesar has jurisdiction in the secular. It's not like this. It's more like this. Caesar has a small delegated area of authority within the context of God's overall authority. He is the supreme creator who is reconciling all things in heaven and earth to himself. Jesus reiterated this when he told Pilate that he would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. Note that he doesn't dispute that Pilate has real authority, but he reminds him where it comes from. So God has an opinion on everything, including taxes, because he is in authority over all of it. As the ex-Dutch prime minister and theologian, Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of creation over which the Lord Christ does not cry, it is mine.
0: So, the positive of uh, the accommodationist approach is that it is very involved in politics and it is in a position potentially to have a positive influence. But the, the key negative about it is that in order to get there, it gives up its ability to actually say anything distinctively Christian. The second approach that the church can take to uh, politics is, it's actually basically the complete opposite of accommodation, it's total separation. The idea is that the church should just stay out of politics altogether. Uh, And and it's actually, it's a very widely held view uh, about church politics in our contemporary secular society today. It's so familiar, but I'll just kind of repeat it for you. Faith is a matter of private belief and morality, and it shouldn't be brought into the public square. Uh, And in fact, this was brilliantly illustrated as far back as the early 1980s in the uh, TV series, Yes, Minister. I'm so sorry that we weren't actually able to play it to you tonight. But as part of the, the dialogue that goes on between Sir Humphrey, the civil servant, and Jim Hacker, the minister, Sir Humphrey says to Jim... Government isn't about morality. It is about stability, keeping things going. Government isn't about good or evil. It is about order or chaos. Now, uh, politics and government, as Sir Humphrey says, merely a matter of kind of organizing our lives as efficiently as possible without any awkward moral values needing to poke their nose in. Well, you know, as soon as you start thinking about it, politics and government, of course, they don't exist in some kind of moral vacuum of uh, purely efficiency and stability, do they? Politics and government are based on what our moral convictions um, are about. What what is a good human life? And and we bring those convictions into the public square uh, with us. Polly in Toynbee in The Guardian, was, she was spot on about this when she wrote, Every day in Parliament, fundamentally different worldviews do battle. Politics is all about the clash of moral universes. But w- what are these moral convictions based on? Well, they're based on what we think uh, it is to be a human being. And we get that idea from whatever our ultimate worldview is uh, about life. That might be a materialist worldview. It might be a Buddhist worldview. It might be an an Islamic worldview. It might be a Christian worldview. And anyone involved in politics brings those worldviews into the public square, and they 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 underpin what our idea of a, a good human life is. So it's it's really important that we in the church don't fall for this this myth of the neutral secular public square, because secularism is not neutral. Uh, it has a whole worldview of its own about what is uh, a good human life. It's much more accurate just to view the public square as just this whole mass of, uh, of opinions, all kind of vying uh, for attention. And Christians have just as much to be uh, active in the public square uh, as anyone else. But this this idea about the church being separate from politics actually sometimes comes from inside the church too. And one of the ways that this gets articulated is that in very simplistic terms, uh, it's the church's job to evangelize and make disciples and help Christians get to heaven. This world's coming to an end and getting involved in politics is equivalent to rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, The whole thing's going down, it is coming to an end. Don't waste your time rearranging the deck chairs, get everyone into the lifeboats is, you know, is the essential idea. Now, I, I, want, I want you to turn back to your neighbors again, and this time I want you, I'm going to be very generous, I want you to just consider one question for two minutes. How would you convince a fellow Christian from the Bible that Christians are called by God to do more than evangelize, disciple each other, and pray? Two minutes. Uh, did, anyone, did anyone have any ideas about what you might say to your, your friend in that situation? It doesn't, need to be, it doesn't need to be a long, brilliant theological, just shout out an idea.
1: Can you hear me? Brilliant. I would read them uh, sheep and the goats. So, uh, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty
0: and give you something to drink? When did you see a stranger and invite you in, uh, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly
1: I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Um, I just don't think you can read that as a Christian and not conclude that there's some call to action from that.
0: Thank you. That's really helpful. And um, I think many people would argue that, that you know that applies very much to Christian brothers and sisters, and, I'm, and you know that's right. But you, it'd be very hard not to extrapolate from it further and kind of say, and, and you know, looking looking after people more generally. And Galatians six verse ten says essentially that it says you know look look after the family of God and all and all people so it's sort of it's kind of concentric circle going going out any other any other thoughts I think the first the first thing I want to say about this one it's really important to say and maybe you guys are all sorted on this and uh um but it (sighs) It is one of those sort of questions that comes back, certainly in certain sections of the church. And I think the main thing to say about it is, a, I think it's a false dilemma. You know, Christians are called to do both things. They're called to tell the good news of Christ to anybody and every any, anyone they can all the time. And they are called to go out and love people and uh, look after them. Um, it's probably, it's even fair to say that, you know, the, the, there's a priority for Christians uh, uh, in the Bible to, can, to tell the gospel to, to, to everyone. But that doesn't, it's not mutually exclusive with, with, with looking after people. It's not, it's not like you, you can't evangelize, and, but you can't be holy at the same time. It's, but, you know, it's, it's not a choice. It's, uh, they're they're complementary. They're they don't cancel each other out. And your very own William Wilberforce uh, from, from Holy Trinity Clapham is a, is a really good example of holding those two things together in his life really uh, powerfully, that twofold commission of preaching the gospel and, um, and getting involved uh, in politics and loving people. As you know, he spent his entire life immersed in politics, working for the betterment of people's lives together in this life. But he was also utterly committed to the fact that the gospel of forgiveness and eternal life in Christ was the most precious thing that any human being could ever know. And that's why he was, as well as uh, all, uh, you know, the, the abolition of the slave trade and slavery in the British Empire, he was also involved in setting up Bible Society with a group of people and the Church Missionary Society. And listen to how strongly he writes about the cause of gaining missionary access to India at the time. This is what he wrote... I regard it as the greatest of all causes, for I really place it before abolition of the slave trade. Elsewhere, he writes even more strongly, remember that the salvation of one's soul is more, more worth than the mere temporal happiness of thousands or even millions. So you know, he, he sees the eternal significance of the gospel, and yet he also sees how that impacts uh, his whole life in the presence, in, in loving people. There are a whole series of other things that we could say uh, in terms of what the Bible as a whole tell us about um, the, the need to, to to both evangelize and look after other people. Uh, in, in Genesis 1 it's, itself, uh, we're, we're told that human beings are created in the beginning, in the image of God, to steward and govern the earth. You know, we, we from the very beginning, human beings are designed to govern the earth, to look after the earth. That's, that's a creation mandate. That doesn't go away with the fall. It doesn't go away with the coming uh, of Christ. And there's government throughout the Bible. Uh, God gives leaders throughout the uh, Old, Old Testament, some better than others. Uh, and in the New Testament, government is endorsed as God given. The other thing you could say is that is what the New Testament teaches about Christ being Lord over all creation. So Colossians 1, 15 and 16, those famous verses you'll know well. I'll just read them again. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. All things in the world, including political power, are created for him, by him, and are sustained by him. So this means there isn't some section of, of, of the world called the church where Christ is at work and, uh, and he's not sovereign in the rest of the world. With that, the video before already referenced Abraham uh, Kuyper. Um, he, was a bit of a t- he was a bit of a talented all-rounder by all accounts. The sort of person who makes you... Um, Feel a bit insignificant about what you're doing with your life when you see his CV. But um, he founded a whole new church denomination in the Netherlands. He started a national newspaper. He founded the Free University of Amsterdam. He started a new political party. And he served as Prime Minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905, um, and also served as a church pastor. Um, so you know, this. There's no surprise from, from his CV that he, he passionately believed in the lordship of Christ over all things and that Christians should bring that to bear in all life, uh, including politics. And there's, I'll quote that. The, the quote came up in the video, but it, uh, it sums it up brilliantly. This is what he, he said No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence. Over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So, uh, the image of God, steward in God's creation, uh, Christ, uh, Lord over all. Uh, the Old Testament and New Testament are full of um, injunctions from God to, to do justice and love mercy, uh, to look after the, the vulnerable. The poor, the widows, the orphans, the uh, the refugees, and and the New Testament when it talks about grace. You know the great gospel message of forgiveness in Christ. Uh, it 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 never leaves it never leaves it there. It always says that it leads to action. It leads to kind of living a life uh, of service um, in response. You know the letter of James tells us that faith without deeds is dead. Um, Galatians 6.10, we've uh, already mentioned, you know, do good to all people. Now, that's got to involve that's got to involve politics. We can't get, uh, ext- extricate ourselves from politics. We get involved in politics because it's one way of loving, you know, there are all sorts of ways of loving our neighbors down our street. And, you know, you guys as a church will be, I know, doing all sorts of things, you know, you're running a food bank, you're doing all sorts of stuff to of loving our neighbors. But Politics is just an extension of that. It's looking at kind of the deeper-rooted uh, problems that lead, uh, that lead to food banks, etc. Then you have, of course, and uh, now we've, come, we've had love our neighbor already. We, you've got the famous parable of the Good Samaritan um, uh, where Jesus makes it very clear that you know, our neighbor is anyone who is in need. And we've got another little video from Christians and Politics here that looks at... Um, how loving our neighbor will also involve political engagement so let's have a look can we have a look at the jericho road video um for a couple of minutes thank you
1: all over the uk the church is doing an incredible job we're running food banks mentoring at-risk teenagers, counselling those in debt, being friends to the elderly, sheltering the homeless, running parent-toddler groups, his homework clubs, music arts workshops, healing in the street, sports camps, (laughs) working with prisoners, community choir. This is wonderful, but there is a danger. Martin Luther King said that as Christians, we enjoy being the good Samaritan on life's roadside. It often feels good to help someone and see the change up close. But he went on to ask, who is going back the Jericho Road. In other words, who is making sure that no one else gets mugged? Do we need more street lighting? More CCTV cameras? More police on the beat? The thing is that those political decisions happen in fairly dull committees poring over statistics and reports. Not as exciting as seeing that change right in your face. But if we don't show up in those places, the church may spend the next 50 years as the nation's paramedic Treating the victims of a flawed system, but failing to bring righteousness and justice to the system itself. It's good to be the good Samaritan, but it's also good to give him the odd day off. Some of us need to be in the system. Might that be you? Don't just vote. Show up.
0: So, the, the positive uh, of, the, uh, of this separation approach is that it, it, it does have a strong and right biblical doctrine of sin and the flawed nature of human beings, and, and it reminds us that we can't be over-optimistic about what can be achieved uh, in politics. And it also is an important reminder to us all the time that the most precious thing that someone uh, can, can know is the forgiveness of God in Christ, but there's a danger that it, it, it neglects too much the Bible's teaching on a responsibility to love and serve all people in response uh, to that gospel message. So, accommodation, separation. Now, the third approach that uh, the church has taken to politics uh, is, is, is termed trans, probably the best way of saying it is transformation. And this approach tends to see Christian engagement in politics as a way of transforming the culture as a whole into a Christian one. And people of this view can, can talk in terms of building God's kingdom through Christian engagement in politics. And the theory goes that as more laws are passed according to, according to biblical principles, God's kingdom grows and the culture becomes more Christian. Now again, can you get into your groups for a couple of minutes? And uh, I want you to ask, uh, uh, to think about two questions. Can can you think of a contemporary example uh, of this, this strongly transformationist approach of making the culture Christian through passing laws? And what would you say, secondly, are the flaws in this approach? Okay, think of a contemporary example what are the flaws with it? Two minutes.
1: Um, under Trump, he introduced, various states introduced abortion laws that weren't in place before he came into power. Which I think would argue is in line with the Bible.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. I, I think, And that's just one example of a, you know, a movement that's going, been going on in the U- U.S. since the 70s. Um, you know, what people would call the, you know, term the religious right or moral majority, um, where there's been a move to, um, for the church to get really, really involved in politics and to use politics, and this is a bit of a blunt way of describing it, but it's how often it turns out, to use politics as this sort of great big lever to to try and transform the culture and to to make the culture uh, Christian. Uh, uh, in, in a certain way and um, certainly there's that there's, um, but there are, the, there are problems with, with this approach and I think the, the, the first one is that it, it, it misunderstands how a human society is transformed uh, according to uh, Christianity because at the end of the day the state can't legislate someone into the kingdom of God That only happens as individuals come to put their faith uh, in Christ, and it's it's over-optimistic about what politics can achieve in terms of transformation uh, of culture, because the Bible is very clear that human beings are hopelessly flawed and corrupt. Uh, We begin to be transformed as we come to faith in Christ, but even then, after we become Christians, as we all know here tonight, we're far from the finished product Um, And we we are not made new until uh, the new creation. Uh, It also misunderstands actually kind of culture formation too, is that it's sort of looked to try and sort of achieve a cultural revolution at the kind of political level. But actually the reality is, is that culture is, in terms of people's opinions, Is formed first at at much higher levels than politics. It's formed in sort of in the media and the arts and in academia, and those kind of ideas trickle down into politics. Is sort of somewhere at least two thirds of the way down. By the time those ideas have got to politics, those ideas are quite very set uh, in the in the culture, Um, and so it's amazing that uh, you know, with a few um, exceptions. Enormous energy has been poured into by the Church in America to, to use politics to transform the culture, and it's amazing how, actual little effect that has has had in practice, and yet much much sort of smaller um, movements have been much more influential by, influencing the culture at the level of academia, media, uh, and the arts. This, in this, I, did men, I mentioned at the beginning quite often. People talk about building God's kingdom through, this, through, through politics and affecting change in that way. And I, I think it's important just to kind of the kingdom of God is obviously a huge subject in the Bible. But just to try and get our, our understanding of, of how the kingdom of God is described in the Bible, because when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's, he's talking about the, the rule of God. He's talking about coming under his. Uh, his king, kingship, it's not a geographical area or anything like that, uh, or a sort of kingdom, physical kingdom. It's, it's, coming, it's coming under him. It's coming under his kingship. It's something that either sort of comes upon people or they enter into it. It's never something that sort of human beings or Christians build up themselves. It's something that is, happens to us as we, uh, as we come to faith in Christ. So you can't legislate someone into this kingdom. And uh, the other thing to, to say about the kingdom of God is that it's both now and not yet. So the kingdom has arrived in Christ in his first coming. And um, we begin to kind of live out the, uh, the nature of that kingdom now. And we can enter that kingdom now. But also this kingdom is yet to fully come. It, it will only be perfectly established when Christ comes again to fully established this kingdom. So we live in this overlapping age of the kingdom has started, as Christians come under his rule, they are in his kingdom. They're beginning to live out that kingdom. But that kingdom isn't yet fully realized. And we can't, through politics or legislation or whatever, kind of bring it about ourselves. It's something that will be fully brought about by Christ when he comes again. So the positives of transformationism It gets absolutely right that when Christians come to faith in Christ, they don't just live transformed lives in the church, but that the gospel sends people out into all society to live those transformed lives, including politics, to live out the politics of this new kingdom of Jesus, and how does it apply in all areas of life, to love our neighbor, to seek the good of all people. But on the negative side, it's it's over-optimistic about sort of using politics as some great big lever to uh, transform culture. And, and it, it underestimates that people are only transformed, actually, as they come to faith in the gospel of Christ and then start to live that out. Now, finally, I want to try and commend to you a way for Christians to navigate politics that combines the strengths of all these approaches, but also, I think, is most faithful to what the Bible teaches. And I, I wish it had a sexier, snappier title. I'd really Please give me some help afterwards. But the best description I've come up so far with it is is distinctive engagement. Uh, Because I think what we've seen so far is that the Bible teaches two main truths about Christian engagement in politics. First, it does call the Christian to be engaged and not separated from society. But second, it does also call for the Christian to be distinctive uh, in their engagement. And Jesus... uh, gives a most wonderful picture of of this distinctive engagement in his Sermon on the Mount, where he describes Christians as salt. As you know, one of the main purposes of salt until the modern age of refrigeration was to preserve meat. And Jesus says that the Christian is like salt in meat to prevent it from decaying. In order to do its job, the, the salt needs to be salty to, to preserve the meat. It needs to be distinctive, in other words, to do its work. But at the same time, the salt is, is no good if it's not actually present in the meat, you know, if it's sitting in the salt cellar or whatever it is. It's got to be in the meat to do its, to do its work. So it needs to be distinct and engaged, and so does the Christian. And... Another if this, um, another way of seeing it is, is um, as the you know the picture of the church uh, like a like an embassy like an embassy of a uh, uh, of another country it's, it's it's an embassy in a country and um, it 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 gathers its it gathers its members together to, to, to teach them to equip them to tell the it, it tells them the gospel it, it equips them to go out and tell that gospel uh, in its country. Uh, And also to love and serve the people in that country as, basically, as ambassadors. The the church, the embassy sends out its ambassadors into society to to live as as salt uh, in, in meat. So what does that engagement look like, then, in practice, in politics? Well, it does mean that Christians should be thoroughly engaged in politics rather than just sort of sh- voting once every four or five years and sort of writing a sort of shouty letter to your MP every now and then, but actually engaged in some kind of way. It might be kind of you know, joining a, joining a political party, d- delivering leaflets, d- getting onto the local council, d- doing some, whatever that might be. Now, not everyone is called to be involved in politics, but every single Christian y- y- in a more sort of full-on way, but all of us can be politically involved uh, more involved, probably, than we are already. Um, it also means to be engaged that Christians will cooperate with uh, in politics with those of all world views, because the the Bible teaches that God has given His common grace to all of us, uh, all of us, all of us who live on His planet. We're made in the image of God, and Romans two verse fifteen says that uh, humans who've never even read the Bible, still have uh, a a sense of God's law written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. So that means that there'll be loads of common ground to engage on uh, in in the public square. And again, William Wilberforce was a great example uh, of this. He he built incredibly broad uh, coalitions across parties, Uh, with different, um, all sections of the church, uh, and with atheists in his campaign for the abolition of the slave trade and uh, slavery. So, cooperation. It also means that Christians should be humble and gracious in how they go about their politics, because they recognize, they should recognize, that they themselves are flawed and they need to be challenged in their political opinions. They haven't necessarily got everything sorted in life. And that they might hold some political opinions for you know, prejudiced reasons or whatever. haven't properly thought them through. There should be a humility uh, about their politics. And also, you know, Christians have got more reason than anybody else to treat those of different political opinions with dignity and respect As a a Christian, you believe that every single human being is made in the image of God. They've got an an innate dignity. A kind of secular person coming into politics, they might sort of feel that in their hearts, but they kind of don't know that to be true uh, in terms of the reality. They don't believe in a God who actually gives them that objective dignity. And, And boy, do we need that kind of respect and love and gentleness in our, in our politics today. You see how angry our politics gets. And so much of that is to do with um, a loss of, I think, a loss of belief in God, a loss of a kind of grand narrative for life. And once, you know, once God has gone, all you've got left, really, to make sense of life and to order life is politics and law. And so when politics and law are not going your way, your party's not in power or whatever, you feel more desperate because, you know, that's all there is. And, and, there's, and it leads to kind of anger and frustration. Whereas, you know, Christians have, know that God is sovereign. They know that there is a grander narrative that this life is not all there is. That one day, all these frustrating political problems that keep occurring will be sorted out. And so, and they've got a, they've got a reason to, to treat people with dignity and, and gentleness because they're made in the image of God. We've got... S- such amazing riches and treasure to bring into politics uh, that others don't have. It also means being realistic that serving in politics is hard and challenging. And if you get involved in politics, you're going to need a strong accountability group of fellowship uh, and prayer and rootedness in God's word. And uh, that's why in in the Christians in Parliament ministry, we make a real priority of these weekly groups of of MPs meeting together, cross-party to, uh, to be rooted in God's word together, to hold one another accountable, um, to challenge one an- another as Christians uh, across parties, and to, pray, and to pray for one another. Because they're gonna need, uh, need one another if they're gonna be distinctive. If they're gonna remain salty and distinctive, they're gonna meet, need one another. The, the Bible doesn't have any idea of Christians operating uh, solo. The most common conversation I find myself having with MPs is, is, is reminding them that their identity is in Christ, not in their party, not in their electoral success or their advancement to, to higher office. You know, that challenge is always there, and we need one another uh, to, to, to remind ourselves of that. And again, the more we know that our, our identity is in Christ, the more liberated, actually, we become to be able to wholeheartedly serve our constituents, and whether the setbacks are not not full due to our pride. To be engaged also means to be patient. And again, this is a lesson that we can brilliantly learn from Wilberforce. Because before the 1807 Act was passed, anti-slavery bills had been defeated again and again and again in Parliament. I mean, Wilberforce himself first decided to start uh, campaigning on the issue in 1787, 20 years before that first act was passed in 1807. And it would have been tempting for Wilberforce and other abolitionists to say, actually stop at 1807. Wow, brilliant, mission accomplished. However, it it would be uh, another 26 years before slavery was formally... That was the slave trade in uh, 1807. Another 26 years passed before slavery itself was outlawed in the British Empire, and many more after that before full emancipation in the United States. And Wilberforce persevered patiently in politics for his entire life to see these bills pass. So you need to be patient and persevere if you want to be engaged. But also, what does it mean to be distinctive? What does it mean to be salty as a Christian in politics? Well, it will also mean that we actually apply uh, the Bible to our public life together. Because I talked before about the fact that we've got all common ground as human beings. We're all made in the image of God. But no political philosophy captures the whole truth about what is a human person and human society. If we leave the Bible behind when we enter the public square, we, argue, we will end up allying ourselves to some kind of uh, political uh, vision that's partly right and partly wrong. And sometimes it will be completely wrong. So general revelation in creation enables us to make that common cause with... Uh, People of all worldviews. But without bringing that special revelation of of the Bible, we'll be falling short of actually offering God's full wisdom for his creatures. 2 Timothy 3, verses uh, 14 to 17, famous verses that often get quoted about the authority of Scripture, able to make us wise for salvation. But what people often miss is that the Bible is also authoritative, according to those verses to equip us for all righteousness and every good work in our lives, which again must include our politics. This is what those verses say. But as for you, continue what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means it's utterly legitimate for the Christian to apply uh, the Bible in politics and all that it says about uh, a flourishing human life. Now, of course, there are wise ways uh, of going about that. In a society with a plurality of beliefs, it won't necessarily work to just stand up in the House of Commons chamber or the local council chamber and just quote Bible texts uh, at, at people. Um, because it won't be a recognized authority for everybody. But again, Wilberforce is is instructive here. His whole campaign to end the slave trade was founded on his conviction that the Bible teaches that all people are created equal in the image of God. And in some settings, where the Bible was an acknowledged authority, he, he used the Bible explicitly in his campaign. But interestingly, he almost never... And Jago can probably tell us about that. I don't think he ever used the Bible explicitly, he quoted the Bible in the House of Commons chamber itself. So, just to wrap up, so distinctive and engaged. The Bible leads Christians to be involved in politics, not because this is going to lead to a redeemed culture as a whole, but simply because it teaches us That loving our neighbor and serving others are what Christians are called to do. It's a command of God. And that that serving politics can bring some change uh, in this life while we wait for God's future kingdom to come. Uh, Don Carson, the New Testament theologian, uh, wrote a helpful paragraph uh, on this in a book called Christ and Culture Revisited. This is what he said. Sometimes a disease can be knocked out Sometimes sex traffic can be considerably reduced. Sometimes slavery can be abolished in a region. Sometimes more equitable laws can foster justice and reduce corruption. Of course, none of these things is guaranteed to be enduring. None brings in the consummated kingdom. Yet, in these and countless other ways, cultural change is possible. More importantly, doing good to the city, doing good to all people is part of our responsibility as God's redeemed people in this time of tension between the already and the not yet. And to illustrate this, I just want us to finish with uh, our final video. It's another Christians in Politics video about Elijah and Obadiah, which captures well, I think, what it means to be a Christian distinctively engaged in politics.
1: How much do you know about Obadiah? If you're anything like me, not very much. That's because he worked behind the scenes. You could say he was the sound guy to Elijah's worship leader. King Ahab has been leading Israel astray, dabbling with other gods, and Elijah is told to challenge him. But Elijah doesn't just rant about this dysfunctional political leadership from the desert, screaming into the ether on social media and drumming up signatures for his down with Baal petition. Instead, he seeks a connection with an actual human being. Obadiah managed Ahab's palace and affairs, and it couldn't have been easy for this God-fearing civil servant to be present at the heart of a regime that was doing such damage to God's honor. But he stayed, he was faithful. Then, at the right moment, he meets Elijah and is perfectly placed to broker a very unlikely meeting. The distant is brought close. So the rap battle to end all rap battles takes place on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal suffer total humiliation and an impossible bonfire that even Bear grills couldn't have managed leaves a lasting impact on the consciousness of the people of Israel. But it wouldn't have happened without the event management skills of Obadiah. It's as important to be holding the clipboard as it is to be holding the microphone. Elijah constantly confronted King Ahab from outside the court. We need brave people like him, but less of us are working on the inside, like Obadiah. We need more brave people like him. Let's face it, it's much more exciting to see altars burst into flames than to be forwarding emails around government departments. Elijah gets to be the hero of Sunday School stories. Obadiah, mm, not so much. We can refine our message until it's perfect, then pump it out with every piece of technology we can find. But if we don't connect with any real people who are willing to listen, it may not bear the fruit that it could. The difference between noise and influence is relationship. If the very nature of God is a set of relationships, could it be true that the kingdom of God never moves faster than the speed of relationships? We live in a noisy world. So much information, but not much wisdom. How do we filter it how do we work out which words to believe we believe what's said by the people we know and trust so wouldn't it be better if people were hearing our message from people that they know and trust making noise helps us feel better but it may not be so great for the rest of the world noise makes you move away from something relationship draws you closer to someone do we just want to feel like we've done our duty Or do we want to have real influence? If so, we need to do the hard yards of relationship building. It may not be fast and it may not be pretty, but we will learn and be transformed in the process. And it may just lead to moments when impossible and beautiful things cause everyone to stop and stare and say, The Lord, He is